Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number five. These are brethren fighting slavery and its northern stronghold. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, it isn't worth knowing. Luke. Well, it's great to be back again talking this time about the subject that pervades so much of contemporary discussion of the early years of the American Republic, slavery. And I, I want to commend this chapter. Well, everyone's should buy and read the book. But I think this chapter does something that is too rarely done today, which is that it takes slavery seriously and puts it in its proper place. A lot of the commentary or history that you read from folks of a generally conservative bent likes to sidestep and look around uh, the facts of slavery, some of the moral cowardice that our, our political heroes exhibited when it comes to slavery. And then a lot of historians of a leftward bent want to reduce everything to slavery and, and they, they miss a lot of the ways in which slavery changed over time, the ways in which slavery was often rationalized after the fact rather than being itself a kind of coherent, uh, unflinching, unchanging force um, in, the, uh, in, in the world of American ideas and the world of American politics. And this chapter which addresses the constitution of the New York Manumission Society, uh, digs into a, a, I would say, particularly interesting case study in the idea, the ideas of slaveholding and the ideas of liberty, where they intersect and where both as a matter of practical politics, political economy, but also the demands of conscience uh, make some difference but not all of the difference, where we see both the imperfection of even some of the stalwart abolitionists in New York but um, we see also how important even the half measures and even the half statements could be over time and in some ways this document continues the New York snowball that we've talked about in earlier episodes where uh, you know we begin 
um, with Flushing, we move to Zenger. We have um, beyond that the, the, the building demand of liberty in different zones of life and, and New York seems to be the central focal point for, uh, for where a lot of that is taking place in, in America. Who and what – who constituted and what was the New York Manumission Society? Well, I, I think the most important thing to establish coming out of the gate is that it is the New York Manumission Society. Slavery was by no means a southern thing. Uh, when the Declaration of Independence was signed, all the 13 states had slaves. Vermont didn't have slaves but it wasn't one of the 13 <laughs> states. So yeah, so all, all, all the 13 states had this. A number of them began freeing themselves from it during the Revolutionary War and shortly thereafter. But New York was kind of a stubborn northern practitioner of this form of bondage. Uh, New York City had the largest population of slaves in the late 18th century of any city in America except for Charleston. Hmm. Now, it's partly because New York has become the largest city, but still, uh, there they were. And not only in New York City, they also existed uh, throughout the Hudson Valley, uh, in Long Island. They formed, they provided the labor on small farms. Uh, they worked in the shops of artisans in the city. They were a feature of daily life. So the New York Manumission Society is formed after the revolution, uh, 1785, two years after the peace is concluded, to deal with what its founders consider a problem and a stain upon their home state. What did they believe slavery was then? I, and I, I ask this with the following in mind. We don't have the cotton gin at this point. We don't have the, the kind of quasi-industrialization of uh, – or, or at least the, the mass at scale production of commodities coming out of the south, indigo, cotton, etc. We do have grinding slave labor, um, especially in, in the southern states, um, which – have large plantation economies organized around resource extraction. We also have slavery in smallholding areas, sort of yeoman farmer parts of the, the upper half of the country. Um, but it is not what it will become, right? It's, it's, it's perfectly possible at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century to condemn slavery, to speak out against it, to view it as a stain. We don't have what we'll have by the 1840s, these widespread censorship laws that ban even speaking ill of slavery. So it changes between the revolution and the civil war. At this moment, what does it look like and what do they think it is? Well, the members of this society and, and there is a they, – they fall into two groups which we'll, we'll analyze later. But they believe it's a denial of fundamental rights. Uh, it is the, the removal of, of these rights that Jefferson had talked about from the enslaved persons. Uh, OK, in New York, there were no tobacco plantations. But 
you know, work on a small farm can be pretty damned hard. And you'll be doing that forever. You'll be doing that until you die, unless your master frees you. Uh, another uh, aspect of slavery in New York is the perilous situation of free blacks. There are numbers of, of free blacks in New York City, but they are at risk of capture by slave catchers. Uh, there had been a lot of uh, uh, friction during the Revolutionary War. New York State had had a very bad Revolutionary War, uh, lots of it occupied by the British. Uh, many slaves had taken the opportunity to free themselves by fleeing. So masters locally wanted to recapture them. Also, uh, people, uh, predatory persons would uh, seize free blacks in order to make a killing by selling them. The immediate stimulus for the uh, formation of this society in New York was, was a scandalous event where some free blacks were lured aboard a ship and uh, they were going to be sent either to Charleston or to the Bay of Honduras in the Caribbean to be sold and enslaved. And uh, this was found out. This was stopped. Uh, this was uh, uh, thought to be a shocking thing. And that was the, the immediate stimulus for these New Yorkers to come together to form this particular society. And, and the New Yorkers that form this are by and large a post-revolutionary well-heeled group. I mean these are, these are some of the most respectable members of New York. But as we've seen, New York elites are really good at fighting with each other. So uh, what are the politics underpinning this? What are the politics of man's Man stealing, as they call it, the stealing free men and, and selling them into slavery. What, what's underlying this? Well, the the people who form the New York Manumission Society, there are two groups. Uh, probably the most numerous is Quakers. Uh, these are the people that Peter Stuyvesant had been so exercised about. Uh, he lost that one. They continued uh, to move and settle here, and and now in 1785, uh, here they still are, and the. The denomination has taken a collective stand that they view slavery as wrong and Quakers may not be slaveholders. This happened during the 18th century. So there are New York Quakers in this group who are seeking to uh, put the dictates of their faith uh, into practice in the real world. Uh, the other component is the political elite of newly independent, newly Republican New York. And it's really a cross-section of, of the political factions. You have uh, the man who's the governor of the state, George Clinton. He's in his uh, third or fourth term. He will end up holding seven terms as governor. Uh, he'll get the nickname the old incumbent. If you see pictures of him late in life, he looks a little bit like Tip O'Neill. He's got yeah, there's some he, of that. Yeah, he's got this kind of beefy Paul's face. He he was he was very good at it. Uh, you have he's more or less he becomes more or less an anti-federalist along yes. with Melanchthon Smith. Yeah. Yes, yes, he yeah. he is opposed to the Constitution when that yeah. comes along, and then he will join Thomas Jefferson's uh, first Republican and, Party when that comes along. And Aaron Burr is one of his proteges and sort of learns the business of politics running the Clinton machine in New York. Is that well, right? Aaron Burr is always running his own, own little, machine. <laughs> little machine. But yes, he, he does work yeah. with Clinton early on, although he's not part of this group. Right. Uh, another member of this group is John Jay, uh, the great revolutionary diplomat, spy master, 
Uh, he will become uh, an author of the Federalist Papers in a few years. Uh, he has helped write America, uh, New York's first post-independence constitution. And he will become, when the two-party system gets going, he will become a Federalist. Uh, a young kind of Arrivist member of this elite is Alexander Hamilton, who's uh, an immigrant from the West Indies. Uh, he's fought in the revolution. He's been on George Washington's staff. He has married into the Schuyler family, one of the wealthiest, fanciest families in the state. And, and he's already embarked on a brilliant career. Uh, and then there's a man, Robert Troop, uh, an old friend of Hamilton's. They went to King's College together, now Columbia. Uh, Troop also fought in the revolution and uh, he was taken prisoner at one point. He was also at the Battle of Saratoga. So he had a, you know, he had a very active uh, war and he is another member of what I would call the elite uh, subset of the Manumission Society. So you've got the Quakers uh, and then you have uh, the politicos and they're joining together in this enterprise. One of the things that jumps out in this chapter is the extent to which the theology of manumission moves away from the abstract vision of, of nature and nature's God that Jefferson adheres to and uh, concretizes the Almighty into a much more personal God who demands action. Is that a byproduct of, of Quakerism or is that something – because we see, again, nonconformists, separatists leading the charge here. Uh, is that a byproduct of Quakerism or is that something that we also think that the elites of New York share? Well, I think some of the elites of New York share it. Uh, John Jay uh, was, a, was a pious Calvinist. Uh, he writes – he tried to get into New York's first constitution an anti-slavery provision and he failed in that. And then a few years later, he, he wrote that so long as we continue to hold slaves, our prayers to heaven for liberty will be impious. Hmm. That, that's a very strong yeah. statement. And he's a very worldly man. He's a worldly political man. Um, you know, no Quaker sectarianism uh, being off doing your own thing for him. He's, he's in the middle of the fight in the rough and tumble. But he has uh, these powerful religious convictions. And Jay, when we hold him up, because Jay, of course, will hold numerous offices, including Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He's you know the the least important of the three. He's the sort of the the vestigial tail of the authors of the Federalist Papers. He got papers, sick. But, yeah. he, all, he also got hit in the head by a rock in a in a, in a riot. <laughs> you know, so that that took him out of commission, which, which was part of politics in this. In That's this right. Time, which people forget. That's um, right. But if we hold up, you know, we've talked about these individuals who we've kind of visited in the earlier chapters. Uh, who is Jay? Is because he he stands out in this. He's uh, his family is French Huguenot. Uh, his grandfather was a refugee. Um, one unfortunate aspect of his pi piety is that he's uh, pretty anti-Catholic throughout his life, uh, and the wounds for him are. You know, rather recent. He's only a couple generations removed from from persecution, so that it's not a justification, but it's an explanation for why he has that. Uh, like I said, he's a very hard-headed guy. He runs during the war. At one point, he runs something called the Committee for Detecting Conspiracies. Um, he is the source of James Fenimore Cooper's first hit novel, which was called The Spy. 
And uh, Cooper knew Jay as an old man and Jay was just telling him all the stories of the spies he ran and Cooper turned this into a novel. It's interesting. Jay wouldn't give him any proper names even Hmm. years after the war was over. He was protecting his assets even then. Uh, As a diplomat, he's very hard-headed. He helps negotiate the Treaty of Paris and one of his comments is that – You know, apart from the interests of the countries which sign treaties, no treaty has ever meant anything since the world began. Uh, That's that's pretty bracing. And yet this this man, this very hard-headed political man wants to take a stand on this for I think religious reasons and also uh, the the sort of political reasons that had animated – uh, Jefferson and the Continental Congress in writing and signing the Declaration of Independence. Sticking with the other members of the association, what is their personal relationship to slavery? Some of them own slaves. Oh, yes, yeah. they do. I mean, Jay owns a couple. Uh, he says, well, I bought them to free them, although he's holding them as long as they work off the price that he paid for them. So this is kind of a mercenary uh, way of doing charity. Uh, Robert Troop, who is probably the man who who writes the statement of principles of the Manumission Society, uh, he owns a couple of slaves. Uh, it's debated among Hamilton scholars whether or not he ever owned slaves. I mean, this is a, a very fraught issue. Certainly, uh, Hamilton was on a committee of the New York Manumission Society, which recommended that all members of the society free their own slaves over a certain uh, time schedule and this recommendation <laughs> was shot down. They, they didn't want to uh, be so bold as that just yet. So uh, uh, some of these men, certainly on the political side, are um, marked by this institution. They're, they're, they're practicing it. Now the Quakers by this point would own no slaves. Uh, you couldn't own slaves and still belong to a meeting. You would, mm. be, you would be expelled if you did that. So they are non-slave owners. What, what else would constitute expulsion? Is it a – Not it on paying a... your debts. OK. So it's a pretty short list. Uh, well, uh, marrying out of, yeah. out of Quakerism, that would do it. I don't know how short it was. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, Quakers were, were very pacific people but they were also very, you know, very sticklers about what they believed. We generally associate Quakerism with Pennsylvania but it sounds like there's a there's through all these chapters. It sounds like there's a sizable Quaker population in New York and well everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Uh, it's one of the it's one of the I would say five or six largest denominations at this point. Now their birth rate is one of the first to fall uh, in early American history, so their percentage of the population shrinks and shrinks steadily. But there's still a a numerous force in 1785. To what extent are the elites and the Quakers and the society interconnected and interrelated outside of the society? Is it truly just a bringing together of two blocks or are there business ties underpinning this? Are there personal ties underpinning it? Well, we said uh, in uh, one of our earlier uh, podcasts that New York was a very small place Mm -hmm. and you know it still is even though it's grown. (laughs) So you know every everybody knows everybody. Uh, if, especially if you're someone of any any prominence, any eminence, any importance, you know, even if you're a Quaker, which by this time is starting to mean you're 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 really 
you're really separating yourself from a lot of of the normal life that other people engage in, you still you still know everybody in New York. And and so, what was the social cachet uh, that would bring, or if not cachet, what is the social force bringing this unified elite into this? Well, as I said, the immediate stimulus was this scandalous was event scan. where these these free black men were were going to be kidnapped, sold into slavery. So, was there a popular then disgust at this? Among, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. This was like what. You think you, know, you, you think forward to the draft riots of the 1860s and it shows the extent to which the, the mass ideological complexion of New York had changed when it came to the question of free blacks from, from this point onward into the, into the 1850s and well, 60s. Well, that's true although even, even then there were uh, supporters of black life mm-hmm. and black liberty in New York, people who were appalled by the draft riots and what the draft rioters were doing. And similarly, in 1785, people appalled by this by this man stealing. And one thing that the Manumission Society does, one of its purposes, is to help blacks who are already free. Uh, it sets up schools for education of black children. They start off with black boys. They very quickly add black girls. Uh, their argument is that uh, free blacks are more readily victimized because they are uneducated. If we educate them, then it will be harder for man-stealers to trick them into some sort of ruse and then you know, take them out of the state in, into slavery. So um, that, is, that is one thing that the Manumission Society is founded to do, to protect free, uh, free blacks. Um, I, I think it was also the revolution had just ended, right? Mm-hmm. Two years earlier, 1783, they they just fought this war uh, in part for these principles, and so now there's a feeling: okay, uh, let's let's work them out. Let's uh, we have some problems here in our own state, and let's try to address this. Let's do something about it. What be, what becomes of the schooling effort? Uh, the schools continue and then they are, uh, they are finally folded into the New York public school system early in the 19th century. And um, oh, I remember one of, the, one of the kids they graduated went on to become a president of Liberia, I believe, oh. later on in the 19th century. So that was something that, um, that bore fruit. You, you, were, you were talking earlier about the the ways in which the Manumission Society addressed or spoke of God and contrasting that with Jefferson's language in, in the Declaration, which is rather philosophical, abstract, laws of nature, nature's God. What the Manumission Society says is the benevolent creator and father of men. So this is very, this is very personal. It's, it's familial. He's our father and he wants, he wants us to do what we're setting about doing. It leads to the use of the term brethren um, and, and seemingly in earnest, which you know, by the time – again, if anyone's read mid-19th century uh, racial theory to say nothing of, of what survives beyond it where we get these really sort of horrific naturalized theories of, of racial difference that um, – solidify the categories of race. That's not here. There's, no, there's, there's, no, no, no. It, it says uh, the, the constitution of the Manumission Society says uh, that enslaved people share equally with us in the right to liberty 
and these, our brethren, are as much entitled to it as ourselves. Why do you think that feeling of – it certainly I think could safely be said that in the United States in 2019, there's not a broad-based willingness to see people as brethren. We don't, we don't sort of talk in that language. But where do you think that idea went? Where do you think – why do you think it died, so to speak? Because I think it, people say that in church. Yeah. I think they do. I think you I think this Sunday you could That's go true. to yeah. lots and lots of churches in this country and hear that language. And and here it's sincerely said. You know, mindful of all the you know, all the lacunae and caveats the blind, and you know, all, all the rest of it. No, but I think it's there. So, despite this, I mean, as you note, the the Man Mission Society kind of gets dragged a bit by historians for being patriarchal, for being gradualist, for uh, you know, focusing on man-stealing, which is a much more politically convenient target of moral outrage rather than demanding that people fork over property in the form of human beings, including even their own. They won't, they won't set a timetable on it. And yet it, towards the end of the chapter, you point to uh, William Hamilton, um, a, a preacher and sort of leader in New York's black community. Uh, Probably no relation to Alexander, although that rumor. There was a rumor. There was a rumor. There was a rumor. And, and, and of course, Hamilton himself was the subject of repeated rumors about his own, um, you know, background within his family. Um, William Hamilton, so many years after the society, and this would have been right about when they were folding the schools into the the public school system. Well, it's it's, it's in 1827, which okay, is when right slavery before. finally ends in New York. Finally, ends. Uh, what? What happens is that John Jay, who is uh, a signer of this this document and the first president elected the first president of the society, he is governor of New York in 1799, and he signs into law a a bill which provides for the gradual abolition of slavery in the state, and it, it's it's amended a little later, but. The result is that by July 4th, 1827, there will be no more slavery in New York State. And it's at this moment that, that William Hamilton, who is a, he's a carpenter, he's a, he's a journalist, he's helped found a black church in New York City. Uh, he gives a sermon there hailing this event. He says that, that New York has cleansed itself of a stain. And then he wants to say, he wants to review who's been responsible for that. He singles out Quakers. He says we should always remember this, this society of friends uh, that was so instrumental. And then he singles out the New York Manumission Society. And he said there had always been opponents of slavery, but they were single and alone. Then after the war, they drew together. And then, then 1785, the Manumission Society is founded. And he calls it the propelling cause. He says they, they were the people who were pushing to end this politically and practically. And, and he says, you know, thank God John Jay is still alive. He is still with us to see the result of his, of his handiwork. And he, uh, he gives him the, the credit that he believes is due him and other members of the society. He recites a list of names, including Alexander Hamilton, various of the Quaker signers. But uh, so... The reason I included that is I think it's very interesting that this 
free black man at the moment when slavery is ended in his state pays tribute to the Manumission Society. He thought it played a role. He thought that it was instrumental. It also suggests that the Manumission Society survives the internal polarization of elite politics in New York that we get in the 1790s where things become really, really fractious. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. And Jay, Jay had been running uh, for governor against George Clinton. Right. I mean right. These, these two signers of the thing, they'd, you know, Clinton won one race and Jay won another race. So they'd been, you know, butting heads very, uh, very harshly but still retained that common commitment that they had had. Yeah, Hamilton, you know, is nice enough to go to New Jersey to get shot by one of Clinton's allies. <laughs> but well, uh, the what what does so the document itself gives a, a sort of brilliant articulation of principles. But what what happens to the society? It continues. It persists. Uh, what change does it affect, or is it that the uh, is it the ideas that matter? I mean, the schools we we mentioned, but right, the schools know. we mentioned, and then I think Jay's career and and the law that he signs mm -hmm. is is the. Uh, is the fruit of it. Along the way, there were um, laws leading up to the final result. Um, one law said that slaves could not be taken out of the state. Another law said slaves could not be brought into the state. Another law said, well, all the slaves that had belonged to Tories who had been seized, you know, because they, they were disloyal, they, they stuck with Britain, and then the New York State owned these slaves. These slaves will be freed. So these were, you know, these were steps. These were small steps towards the eventual goal. And you can see the importance of them. If slaves can't be taken out of the state or brought into the state, that's like containment. You know, the, the slave problem of New York is going to be contained within New York before we finally abolish it, which they then set in motion. And the last of those, the, the Tory slaves, is, is no small thing given the number of loyalists in New York right. who oh, are yeah. expelled and wind up in maritime Canada, right. in, including the Delanceys, the descendants. Of yes, the, the Delanceys. Yeah. And they still have a street named for yeah, them in Delancey Manhattan, street. but they're gone. Well, so which – we've talked a lot about how ideas in New York or in other parts of America uh, proliferate either through the, through the rest of, of – the colonial and then free American world and even beyond through the Atlantic Eng Anglophone world. What shortly after you know, this sort of New York abolishes slavery in 1827, um, Great Britain abolishes it in 1833. Is there a an emerging discussion about eliminating is there a, an emerging abolitionist discussion going on in the Americas and Britain and Britain's remaining colonies uh, starting after the revolution? Does this contribute to it? What is the sort of – what is the, the discussion that this is participating in? Is it only inward looking or does it have outward relevance? Uh, no, it's national and it's international. Uh, the, there was also in 1807 and 1808, uh, Britain ended the slave trade in 1807 and we ended it in 1808, the earliest date allowed under the constitution. So it was ongoing. Uh, what also very unfortunately springs up in this country is a defense of slavery as a positive good. Uh, those are the words of John Calhoun. He's not alone. He's, he's only the most eloquent but, but many, many other slave owners begin to say, well, it's not just a necessity or it's not just an unfortunate necessity which will wither over time. It's a good thing. Uh, 
It's a good thing because it makes us rich. It's a good thing because these people are incapable of being free and we're taking care of them. And we took them from Africa and made them slaves here. They should feel lucky. Mm. You know, that, that is the, the rhetoric that begins to be said really I think with, with a waning of the revolutionary generation. Mm. I mean Jefferson would never say that. I mean for all his uh, backsliding and timidity when it came to practical steps to end slavery, especially as he aged, he would never have said that. I think he would have been ashamed if he'd like discovered himself saying that. Hmm. He would have blotted it out. He could not have accepted that he had had that thought. Therefore, he didn't have those thoughts. But many in the younger generation increasingly had those thoughts. And why do you think it is that we've seen going back to some of the previous chapters and to, to a different Hamilton, Andrew in the Zenger case where he, you know, he wins on the strength of his argument. In the Flushing Remonstrance, we see practice and principle intersect and win on the, on the strength of, of, of good. That doesn't happen with slavery. We have to – you know, the constitution essentially blows up and we have to fight a civil war amongst ourselves and a horribly bloody one. And of course, even the outcome of that hardly resolves the matter even though it does end human chattel slavery um, in the United States. Uh, why – what makes slavery different? Why was it that the manumission society was not enough? Well, of course, there are powerful economic motives. Um, the cotton gin is often cited. A lot of money was made from cotton. I mean tobacco had been the great cash crop for Jamestown, for Virginia for many years but then cotton came out and that was even bigger. Uh, I'll say a very dark thing. I think once you get over perhaps the initial repugnance, it's cool to own people. It's not only convenient but there's something that makes you feel it appeals to your amour propre. Mm. The petty your, tyrant and all of To your self-love. Yeah. Yeah. Jefferson knew this. I mean he, he wrote about that in the notes in Virginia that, you know, one of the bad features now now you can say you can laugh at this because he's saying one of the bad features of slavery is how it corrupts slave owners. Well, yeah, Tom, it's also worse to be a slave. But but he is right. You know, it does also corrupt slave owners. It it twists their souls, but that's because there is something in the human soul that's willing to be twisted. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called the American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase 
Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.